worker imported. Two patients have died. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Morning from me, Peter Lewis. Welcome to the final day of the month. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday, the 31st of May. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. Shanghai continues to see a drop in COVID-19 infections as it moves towards ending a two-month citywide lockdown tomorrow that aims to restore business activity, production and daily livelihoods to full normality by the end of June in a gradual and phased manner. The city recorded a total of 67 cases on Tuesday, down from 122 infections the previous day. That's the ninth straight day of declines. Over the weekend, Shanghai revealed a 50-item plan to help revive the city's economy. The third phase of Hong Kong's vaccine pass scheme comes into effect today, making it mandatory in many cases for people wanting to enter premises such as malls, supermarkets, cinemas or restaurants to have had their third dose of COVID-19 vaccine. The Society for Community Organisation on Monday called on the government to raise the minimum wage by at least 33% to 50 Hong Kong dollars or more per hour. The grassroots organisation said workers earning the current minimum wage level of $37.50 an hour, first set in 2019 and frozen in a review in 2021, are unable to make ends meet. A senior Federal Reserve official has called for the US Central Bank to raise interest rates to a level at which it starts to inhibit economic growth. Fed Governor Christopher Waller said Monday he supported increasing interest rates by another 50 basis points for several meetings and wouldn't stop that pace until I see inflation coming down closer to our 2% target, he said. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong of Leeds Securities and Andrew Collier from Orient Capital Research. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith at CLSA. Money Talk on RTHK. US markets were closed yesterday for Memorial Day, but in Europe, the region-wide Stock 600 index rose 0.6%. The UK's FTSE 100 edged up 0.2%. Hong Kong and mainland stocks closed higher on Monday, with confidence boosted by the impending easing of long-running COVID curbs in Shanghai. The Hang Seng Index added 2.1% or 427 points to a six-week high of 21,124. Sportswear maker Li Ning jumped 11% and restaurant train chain Heidelo rallied 9.7%. The Tech Index surged 3.9%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.6% to 3,149. Consumer and travel stocks led the gains on hopes of an easing of lockdown restrictions. Beer stocks were among the beneficiaries, with Qingtao Brewery rising 6.7% and Chongqing Brewery climbing 7.5% in Shanghai. Travel and transportation firms also jumped higher, with Jingming Hotel rising by the 10% limit and Guangzhou Bai International Airport advancing 4.5%. 
In the commodities markets, the price of crude oil has risen to its highest level in two months after the EU agreed on a partial ban on supplies from Russia and tentative signs that China is easing its lockdowns. Brent crude oil breached $120 per barrel on Monday, rising almost 2% to $121.72. Gold is at $1,853 an ounce. And in the currency markets, the euro this morning is at $1.73. The Japanese yen is trading at 127.8. One British pound buys $1.26.5 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 92 cents. Chinese yuan rose 0.7% in offshore markets, whilst also gaining as much as 0.6% onshore. This morning, offshore yuan is at 6.67 versus the dollar. And Bitcoin surged 10% overnight to regain the $30,000 level. Right now, it's trading at $31,800. And a bit of a quiet start um, around Asia-Pacific stock markets. U.S. index futures are down a little bit here in Asian trading. The ASX 200 in Australia is off about 0.1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up about a quarter of a percent. The Cosby is flat, and it's also going to be a quiet open for Hong Kong stocks, with the Hang Seng projected to lose about 40 points at the open this morning. Times 808 here in Hong Kong. Let's welcome our guests this morning. We have with us James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Lead Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Andrew Collier, Managing Director at Orient Capital Research. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning, Peter. As we just heard there, Shanghai is seeing a drop still in COVID-19 infections. Uh, now down uh, for the ninth straight day, uh, we saw 67 cases yesterday. Over the weekend, Shanghai revealed this 50-item plan to help revive the city's economy. Vice Mayor Wu Qing announced that companies in Shanghai will no longer need to be on a whitelist to resume production starting from tomorrow with all businesses allowed to resume operations without obtaining prior consent. Other measures include property and land tax rebates, six-month rent reductions for small businesses, a 30% subsidy for private-owned properties, and also uh, some spending coupons to boost consumption. Um, So, James, you want to kick off here. Tomorrow, these lockdowns are due to be eased in Shanghai. I heard yesterday some CEOs of foreign companies based up on the mainland in Shanghai said this is a make-or-break day for Shanghai. How significant do you see it as being? Uh, Yeah, I think think it's a very detailed plan, and uh, we have a 33-item plan coming out uh, earlier uh, in late May, and then we have this 50-item plan can come out. And I think people are turning cautiously optimistic. And uh, I've heard about people uh, who live in Shanghai now are allowed to go out and uh, take a walk probably at a diameter of about uh, two kilometers. And so this is a big difference compared to what was going on in the past two months. And uh, last time I was here, I remember I mentioned about uh, the uh, the high-speed railway and the flights came out of Shanghai, uh, which was also a first in the past two months. I think people are starting to I feel like Shanghai is easing and uh, uh, Shanghai is actually where this all started. 
I suppose I, I suppose a lot depends upon how much these restrictions really are eased, aren't they? And in particular, can people get back to work? Because at the moment, most of the transport system is still shut down. That's going to be key, isn't it? Yeah, inner city transportation has been resumed somewhat, and we've seen that from a bunch of mini documentaries and some of the uh, the WeChat posts on different mainland uh, social medias. So I think there is a possibility that people who go to work can actually go back home because uh, back two months ago or even a month ago, we've heard some factories resuming work, meaning their workers have to uh, come and sleep on the uh, factory floors and mm-hmm. or sleep in the office. So this is not a good thing for business or workers. So yeah. I, with inner city transportation, both public and private uh, resuming, uh, I think this is going to change a little bit. Um, Andrew, what do you make of this 50-point plan that was announced by Shanghai officials to revitalize the economy? What sort of impact will that have? Is it going to be enough? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I noticed the 600 uh, per person uh, subsidy for small business mm. seemed to be quite substantial if they actually pay that out rapidly. But bear in mind that there's still the threat uh, of new cases, which means that if you're a local party official in a district in Shanghai and you get caught with uh, an outbreak in the building that you haven't contained, you're, you're going to lose your job. So I don't, I don't think that the threat of lockdowns is gone. And a lot of businesses, particularly foreign businesses, are going to be very nervous about reopening under those circumstances. So uh, it really depends on the politics at this point. So if you're a local official, you're really faced with this choice, aren't you? Do you follow Premier Lee's instructions to do everything possible to get the economy reopening? Or do you follow President Xi's instructions, which says that zero COVID is the number one priority? What, what do you do as a, a local cadre? Well, I, I kind of push back on that narrative. I mean, the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and the Financial Times are competing madly to see who can talk about dissent in the upper reaches of the uh, of the leadership. And I'm not completely convinced that that's the case because, in fact, Xi Jinping doesn't have enough authority to really tell you know the, the rest of the state council exactly what what to do. And Li Keqiang is going to be getting its marching orders from Xi Jinping. So I, I'm not totally convinced that, that that reporting that we saw in Bloomberg was accurate, even though they claim they cited eight people for that story. That they but, but what is the priority, though? Which which one is the priority? Is it Because it's, it's still a choice, isn't it, that regardless of whether they're not on the same page or not, you still have to decide, is it zero COVID, in which case as soon as there's more cases, you lock down again, or is getting the economy back on its feet the priority? I think it's zero COVID. I mean, if, it, if you're a local official and you have an outbreak and, and those people start wandering around the city, um, the senior party officials in Shanghai are going to crack down very hard on you because they have to report to Beijing. So I think that still hasn't changed. Mm. James, this is going to be the problem, isn't it? And we're going to find out in the coming days. It seems almost certain that when people start mixing again, traveling on the subway, going to work, that cases are going to go up again. And, and what does the city do? Exactly. Shanghai is a very uh, a significant politically and economically. I, I, I don't mean that just because of it, it, it contributes a lot of the fiscal income for the entire country or contributes a lot to the GDP. Uh, the, 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 the thing that it's where it all started. So when Shanghai started to implement very strict COVID-0 policies, all other cities in China started to follow. So if Shanghai right now can really start to uh, cut people some some slack and uh, um, at least encourage businesses to to uh, survive or thrive. Uh, I think other 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 cities 
who are now kind of in a state of what you just mentioned, uh, probably struggling between a COVID zero target and the economic uh, growth target. They're going to learn from Shanghai. They said, oh, Shanghai has already set an, an example. Shanghai is probably not so harsh on the COVID zero policy right now. So we might follow because mm-hmm. Shanghai is up there. And if there, even if there is uh, is, uh, is potential blames coming down to us, uh, Shanghai is there to, to take that blame first. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, it, it's extremely important to see what happens going forward in and what, and what do you make of those 50 measures that were announced as um, as andrew mentioned there's a generous subsidy of 600 yen per head for the hardest hit businesses that didn't lay off workers there's a 2000 yuan per head yeah, subsidy yeah. for companies that employ students in 2022 is, is this going to be enough to spur the economy yeah i think it's going to help people so uh, help the business uh, and people survive I, th- I think it's necessary i don't know how much it's going to uh, encourage people to spend all of those six hundred dollars or two thousand dollars, but the problem is, um, I think. Yeah. We, sorry, you're still there, James. We might have yeah, lost I'm Andrew, so we'll have yeah. to try and get him back. Okay. Yeah, I think I think the money is is not significant, but it's, uh, it's considering in in China, I think the uh, the uh, average annual income is about thirty thousand dollars per mm-hmm. year, and uh, so I think six hundred is enough for. Uh, some lower income families or lower income individuals to sustain their life for a while. Uh, I think it's a good thing. And they're talking about spending coupons as well to boost consumption, which sort of mirrors a little bit our consumption vouchers here, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, but I I don't think they're giving out that much uh, in in dollar amount. And uh, I think consumption is a byproduct of a booming economy. So when the economy is not doing that well, uh, people people tend to save more and uh, become hesitant to spend. So consumption vouchers are actually better than actual mo- actual money given out to uh, to individuals. Yep. Um, what about some of the other measures that were announced? They're, they're talking about um, trying to boost the property sector, but is that um, a little bit of a forlorn hope at the moment? Uh, I, I think the problem market is it's in uh, in a very deep hole right now, and uh, the the taxes, the uh, the mortgage benefits. Uh, I I'm not really seeing it uh, helping the problem property sales that much, or uh, help the uh, developers start new projects. Uh, okay. The 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 key thing is still money because we just saw another SOE uh, property developer uh, start to uh, asking for extension on on its interest payments. And uh, uh, back in March, we heard about a, a rumor that uh, uh, the PBOC is going to be leading a fund pool, which is about one trillion yuan, and that pool is used to support banks who make lending, make loans to uh, property develop- property developers. And that news was that rumor is still a rumor. We still don't see any other updates on that news. So uh, okay. without that being implemented, I think. Uh, yeah, property market is still in a deep hole. Um, we've got Andrew back, Andrew Collier for Orient Capital Research. Andrew, you mentioned the, uh, the the speech earlier that Li Keqiang made the other day. I don't want to focus on whether or not there's any discrepancy between what President Xi and Premier Li are saying, but nevertheless, this was still quite an extraordinary speech in many ways, wasn't it? Because he was addressing 100,000 officials from many different levels of, of government. And he basically seemed to be saying uh, that there wasn't really any hope anymore of achieving the government's 5.5% growth target, which I think many people had assumed already. 
Yes. Uh, it, I mean, I'm actually perplexed by what is going on in terms of overall policy. They could be bowing to reality, although it was interesting. You know, the head of the Monetary Policy Committee of the PBOC was under investigation for corruption about a couple of weeks ago. That story leaked out. And that's the uh, policy committee that actually decides the GDP deflator, which sounds very technical. But that's the one where you can really fiddle it. It's kind of a black box thing for GDP. So I kind of wondered in the back of my mind if there's some games being played with the data. Um, but, yes, I mean, it could be that Li Keqiang has decided to throw in the towel and just say, okay, we're going to talk Turkey about the economy because uh, uh, if we don't, then people are, not, are going to expect uh, too much from us and we just cannot deliver. So, And he was talking about the economy basically stalling at a dangerous rate and facing a lot of critical risks here. We've got the China PMI data coming out um, today. Do you think that's going to show um, a pretty disastrous outlook for the, for the economy? Or do you think maybe things will start to, maybe we've bottomed and things are going to start to look up? No, I think the, well, the PM is sort of, PMI is sort of backward looking, so I think it's still going to be quite, pretty negative. But bear in mind that the property problems were engineered by the government to reduce overall debt. And they, they have not yet increased uh, uh, bank loans to the extent that they were doing four or five years ago. So they're still uh, basically have decided that they can no longer fuel the economy with just with overall bank debt. I mean, there's other mm-hmm. forms of subsidies and bonds and in uh, fiscal deficits and so forth. So I'm not saying it's completely devoid of capital. But um, they, they've decided to accept the pain. And in some ways, that may be why she's looking for uh, to increase his uh, position going forward politically. I mean, the, the, the government's plan seems to be basically going all in on tax breaks for companies that have been hard hit and also infrastructure spending to try and get the economy back on track. They don't really like this idea, do they, of doing what foreign governments and central banks have done and putting money into consumers' pockets. They don't really like this idea of, um, of free money. So do you think this policy mix can work? Well, I mean, first of all, to, to help the consumer, you'd have to restructure the entire state system in China, which isn't going to happen. Um, second of all, what they've really done is to shift some of the debt to local areas in terms of local government debt and also um, the local government companies called LGFVs. And my personal view of that is that it's a way of shifting blame for problems from the central government, which you know would be bank debt kind of uh, subsidies, to local government. So if you have any defaults, it's the local government that is responsible. And so I think they're basically accepting that there's going to be massive defaults, as we're starting to see in the property sector, and that's going to trickle through other areas. And it's up to the local governments to try to figure out how to keep people uh, from starving. Mm. James, what are your thoughts about the China markets? Um, we've seen a little bit of a rebound over the past few days. About 89% yeah. now of Chinese companies have reported their first quarter earnings. Uh, they've risen on average about 2% which is compared to estimates and the estimates of about 8% for MSCI China index. So they're clearly disappointing and lagging behind. But nevertheless, do you think stock prices have now discounted that and are actually looking good value on the mainland? Yeah, I think the investors are, are uh, really uh, cautiously optimistic right now because we can see the, uh, the uh, stock market performance yesterday, especially yesterday morning, because over the weekend, uh, the uh, the Shanghai 50 item plan was out, and uh, we were expecting a much higher opening yesterday at uh, HSI. But uh, turned out before the market opens, uh, the, the reaction is uh, is non-material. And mm-hmm. then after 9:30, not much movement. The mm-hmm. real buy flow starts at 10 10:15, and uh, that's that's because 
people started to look at each other and say, "Oh, you're buying, so I'm buying too." <laughs> so this is the gradually building optimistic uh, environment. So yeah. I, I think it's uh, it's going to be a little better in June, and uh, we think the twenty one thousand point for the Hang Seng Index is going to be a new uh, uh, break or bridge, uh, the new Li Keqiang bottom for investors in June. If the Hang Seng Index dip below twenty one thousand points, I think the uh, selling pressure is going to accelerate. Andrew, people were buying consumer and travel stocks yesterday. Do you think that's the right thing to do, or maybe is that a bit premature? And what do you think about the value of the market overall, given the decline we've seen in earnings now? Is it good value, though? Uh, well, I'm not really a market strategist. I'm more of an economist. But um, overall, I think that it is too early to start saying that the consumer is going to be rebounding, because mm-hmm. as we've been discussing, the zero COVID policy is still in effect. Yeah. Do you agree with that, uh, uh, James? Yeah, yeah, I do. So consumer stocks, we've got to really wait and see to see how these lockdowns actually work in effect and what sort of impact it has on the economy, the lifting of these restrictions. Exactly. I think I think the, uh, the, the, the there is a, a, a short squeeze for consumer stocks, especially for the, uh, the uh, beers, the uh, beverages, and for uh, retailers. And I think this this optimistic uh, view might not last that long until the, we get the uh, numbers that can confirm. Uh, okay, they are already bottomed up. They are they're on the on the rise. I, I think this chance is still okay. kind of slim right now. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Lead Securities. Andrew Collier, Managing Director at Orient Capital Research. Five, six, seven a.m. Radio three. Times 8.24. Let's go over to Tokyo and join Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA. Morning, Nick. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Let me get your thoughts, first of all, about President Biden's visit uh, to Japan and also the launch of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Japan, one of the 14 countries that has joined it. What, what does Japan get from this? Um, it would be nice to be able to say something nice, but I think um, the, the view of most people is that the, the Indo-Pacific economic framework is a massive uh, a nothing burger. Um, so you, you've got to remember, you go back to 2011 and the um, Obama move to, her, to pivot to Asia. Uh, and he was talking about that as, as um, writing the rules of the, um, of the road. And then... The U.S. over time came round to believe that getting a free trade area with uh, Asia would lose its jobs rather than win its jobs. Uh, and so under uh, Trump, it pulled out. And under the Biden administration, it's, um, it, it's still not going back in. And you remember there were, there were two competing um, trade areas. There was the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership that the U.S. was in and China uh, wasn't. And then there was RCEP, the Regional um, Comprehensive Economic Partnership that China was in and the U.S. wasn't. Mm. And Japan, in the end, um, very, very much wanted to get uh, TPP working. It, it did a TPP light without the U.S. when the U.S. pulled out. But in the end, had to go and join um, RCEP, the, mm. the one that's got China and not, uh, not the U.S. So now this um, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is, is basically the rules of, a, of an FTA, but uh, without the market access. 
also, um, I think most people attending the, uh, the discussions, it's a credit to the, the friendship they have towards the U.S. that they are prepared to discuss it, but they came out saying, I, I, I can't discuss it because I don't know what it is. Mm, and there's 14 countries that have joined something that they don't really understand and know what's in it for them. But I suppose that that's a sign of it. It's really a political deal, isn't it, rather than a trade deal? It is a political deal, but, you know, it's got four pillars, uh, as it calls, of the trade and supply chains and so on. And you can't really have the supply chains bit of it without Taiwan in. But uh, it doesn't have Taiwan in because of a wish not to uh, uh, to offend China. So it, it really is quite a mess. I mean, I get the feeling that what Japan and other countries in the Indo-Pacific region really, really want most of all is the ability to be able to trade with the US uh, in a more easy fashion with less uh, restrictions on imports, uh, tariffs being removed. That's really what they want, isn't it? Of course it is. So um, for a very, very long time now, Japan, um, Japan has had since the, the 1970s zero import tariffs on autos. But effectively, the U.S. has got um, 25 percent um, because that's the, the tax that covers things like uh, um, um, recreation vehicles. Um, and so there is a feeling that the U.S. is a, is a fairly hermetically sealed market. Um, and Japan's got round this by building its cars in, um, in the U.S. But um, I think there is a lot of frustration there uh, that the U.S. will not get a pivot to Asia unless it's prepared to, uh, to free trade with Asia. So how, how was the visit overall um, of President Biden to, to Japan? Was it a success? Did it cement relations between the U.S. and Japan? Um, relations between Japan and the U.S. Um, have been strong, um, are strong, and, and will be strong. Um, so it, it's a chance for the two leaders to uh, to meet each other in, in person. But uh, to say that any great agreements were made, I think, is um, is stretching it to the uh, the absolute limit. Mm. Um, and what about the markets? Obviously, a lot of focus around the world on inflation, including in, J- in Japan now, and also the Bank of Japan's uh, strategy, as we discussed last time. Uh, Japan seems to be getting its inflation, but the wrong type. Well, um Essentially, the, the, the Japanese market has done extremely well. So year-to-date uh, topics in, in local currency terms is off 3.7%, and the, the S&P in the U.S. is off uh, uh, 13%. So I, I said at the beginning of the year, um, Japan won't be raising rates, so the, uh, the currency is going to weaken. Hedge that, because as long as you hedge it, you'll do very nicely. Thank you. And that's exactly what's, uh, uh, what's happening. Japan's got a bit of inflation, 2.5% inflation. Um, it, it was, its return to, uh, to inflation was held back by the uh, previous prime minister um, um, pushing down um, telco prices, which is a strange thing to be doing when, <laughs> when you say that you're trying to get inflation. But uh, yes, we have a bit of in- inflation now. It's a bit um, imported inflation. Historically, imported inflation hasn't been much of an issue. Ultimately, what gets you inflation is, is wage price inflation. That We really don't have that. And there's going to be a new Bank of uh, of Japan governor soon, isn't there? What difference will that make? 
I think it will make more than, um, than most people understand. If, if you think that um, really the only thing that's gone up in price um, since the start of QE in Japan is food, uh, which is the most socially divisive area, um, I, I think people are getting increasingly frustrated that, um, that living costs are going up but wages aren't, uh, and they will be asking for a, um, a, a governor of the Bank of Japan that's a lot less, um, a, a lot more conservative than, um, than Kuroda was. So I, I think we can expect someone probably like uh, Nakaso, um, previous uh, deputy governor, who will be more in the line of what we expect from a BOJ governor. Nick, thank you very much indeed. Talk to you again soon. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And Asian markets are slipping into the red now in Tokyo. The Nikkei 225 is off 0.2%. In Australia, the SX200 is down about a third of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea also slipping. That's off 0.4%. Uh, looks like a small loss of about 40 points or so for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Please do join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. I'll have further business and finance updates for you. Coming up after the news, the COVID update with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, hot with sunny periods, a few isolated thunderstorms at first. The maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees. It's going to be persistently hot with sunny periods and a few showers in the next few days. The temperature right now already 29 degrees and it's 81% relative humidity. Times 8.31. Here's Andrew Shirosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Chief Executive-elect John Lee will return from Beijing today with his official letter of appointment and an endorsement from the nation's top leaders. Premier Li Keqiang said Beijing had high hopes for the new administration. President Xi Jinping praised Mr. Lee's love for the country and his national security work. Mr. Xi reiterated Beijing's determination to uphold one country, two systems. Despite experiencing many challenges in the past 25 years, One Country, Two Systems in Hong Kong has achieved a universally recognized success. The central government's determination in comprehensively and accurately implementing the principle has never wavered and will never change. With the joint efforts of the central government, the SAR administration and all sectors of society, Hong Kong has returned from chaos to stability. Now we are at a critical period in moving towards prosperity. I believe the new administration's governance will certainly bring a new atmosphere and write a new chapter for the city's development. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has urged European Union leaders meeting in Brussels to resolve their disagreements and impose wider sanctions on Russia. He was speaking to the summit via video link. The sixth sanctions package must be agreed. It must be effective, including oil, to make Russia feel the price for what it's doing against Ukraine and the whole of Europe, to make you all finally independent, together with us, from the Russian energy weapon, at least from its oil part. The president of the EU Council, Charles Michel, has said that the bloc has agreed to ban more than two-thirds of Russian oil imports. He said they'd also agreed hard-hitting measures targeting Russia's largest bank and three state-owned broadcasters. And back locally, one of the Southern District's former tourist hotspots, the Jumbo Floating Restaurant, is floating away from Aberdeen Harbor after more than four decades. The owner of the business, which closed two years ago, says the vessel will be sent away for maintenance and storage next month. 
The loss-making restaurant had been offered to Ocean Park, but the theme park said it couldn't find an operator. Southern District Councilor Jonathan Leung says he's sad to see the jumbo go. I believe he's just very special memory, especially for the residency itself signed. This is the only folding, the truly folding restaurant in Hong Kong. And it has been up and down since the last few decades. But I, I believe the, the pandemic itself could cause a serious influence to this matter, which it has no business hope or something. It's just spending money, so it's like gone forever. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. The authorities have been reminding operators of restaurants and other catering premises that they'll have to enforce tightened vaccine pass requirements from today, with many customers now required to have had three COVID